As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research, highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is Beth Bundy, who's a qualified naturopath of over 17 years, specialising in integrative and functional medicine. Beth worked previously as technical consultant with PathLab, one of Australia's original functional pathology companies, and is currently training health practitioners nationally as clinical consultant at Nutropath Integrative Pathology Services, where she's in high demand as an engaging and informative speaker. She also works as a functional medicine practitioner in a busy and highly successful integrative medical practice. And I welcome you back to FX Medicine, Beth. Thank you, thank you. Beth, today we're going to be covering part two. We're going to go in depth of the three-legged stool. So I think right from the outset, can we just recap? Um, what is the three-legged stool for our listeners, please? Three-legged stool. So if you recall on a previous podcast, we talked about the thyroid, adrenal and sex hormones that I like to look at as a base for um, my patients. And why a three-legged stool? Why are, are these sets of glands so important as an interplay? Well, I think you may remember getting in trouble at school, Andrew, for swinging on two legs of a chair. <laughs> And the teacher said, put all feet on the floor or you'll fall over. And, well, really, that's kind of how I see our patients uh, will figuratively fall over if we're not looking at all the legs or all the aspects of the three-legged stool mm -hmm. um, in, in the one you know, equation yep. because they're so interrelated with each other that if we just work on um, thyroid without supporting the adrenals, we don't get as good effect as we would have if we dealt with those. If we just do the adrenals and we're not looking at um, the hormones, and especially if they're ladies, the female hormones, uh, they're not going to get as good as results as they would have had we looked at the three-legged stool. So it's, it's really hard to, to sort of discuss this as an interplay without looking at, I guess, each on their own first. So let's start with the thyroid because it governs the rate and rhythm of every cell in the human body. Mm -hmm. What do you see in your clinic and how are you treating these sorts of patients? Well, we, we generally see suboptimal thyroid levels. Uh, we can see that often. We'll put, we'll, we may see you know, quite a few patients that have been put on thyroxine because of an elevated TSH, but they don't feel any better. 
And, you know, I'm sure many practitioners have these patients. And we probably see positive thyroid antibodies, I would say, in my clinic in about 40 to 50% of people. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So um, to varying degrees. I mean, I've seen some, you know, frightful measures. Mm. And, um, and then we also look at the adrenals and the sex hormones at the initial consult because, you know, as I mentioned, the adrenals affect the thyroid, affect the sex hormones, affect the adrenals. And, you know, a good example of this is like with weight gain. So we have the patients that come in with weight gain and you might jump with, oh, it's thyroid. But of course, can the adrenals cause weight gain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And as can the thyroid and as can, can the sex hormones. I mean, let's just talk about estrogen. Yeah. So those three things can all be a part of a patient's um presenting complaint weight gain. So, you know, if you have a lady come in, she's complaining of the weight gain, but she's also hypothyroid, estrogen dominant and adrenally driven, and she's only been given thyroxin, I don't think she's going to feel crash hot, mm. you know, or well, any skinnier. Well, what about those already on, as you say, thyroid medicines? Um, you know, we've seen some, some ra um, they were heroic, uh, I would say, albeit silly, um, dosages of things like iodine. Um, mm. where it just threw everything out. And, and you know, the, the industry basically bears the brunt of, of those interventions because um, those who don't know about integrative medicine just labels us all as dangerous or, or something like that. So how safe is the adjunct use of supplements generally? Oh, well, I'm quite comfortable with using them completely. I mean, I think that's why they're complementary, really, uh, to patients on thyroid medication, such as thyroxin. And I've not seen any adverse effects. That being said, I don't do heroic iodine. Um, I do like to do small bites of a little bit of everything as needed. Um, and of course, we know for a fact that the thyroid needs um, selenium, zinc, iron, as well as iodine. Mm. So it, it's important to support that. And and of course, you always need to monitor the patient's thyroid levels. And that means TSH and T4 and T3. And of course, if reverse T3 has been done previously and was elevated, you know, I'll always check that too and make sure that's back in its box mm. or at least heading closer to its box because that will, you know, be could be relevant to um, cortisol again. And and I also find that antibodies, you know, can have various reasonings to why they are elevated. So again, complementary supplementation and nutrition is very important with helping, you know, that. Um, and I've actually used iodine to good effect with um, some of my Hashimoto's girls, actually. But I will stress that this is in a very low dose. Like literally in one of the products I used, three drops of the iodine is less than 300 micrograms and I gave the patient two drops and that was enough apart from you know other supportive therapy but their antibodies fell amazingly mm. and um, so again I don't think we have to be frightened of iodine if we use it carefully. Yeah, responsibly. Yeah. I yeah, mean, the, the no adverse effect limit is 1100 micrograms. Pregnant women are um, advised by the National Health and Medical Research Council. Um, all pregnant women should actually receive a supplement on top of good diet. Mm -hmm. That's on top of the fortified foods. Um, 
a supplement of 150 micrograms throughout pregnancy um, because they know that the diet itself is not enough to make, uh, make up for the shortfall that we have in our Australian diet, which is deficient of iodine. So, yeah, and I also find that you know 150 micrograms is not anywhere close to no. 50 milligrams. No, and and this, uh, you know, I, I think we've spoken about it before. You know, there's an interesting mm. argument between Dr. Guy Abrahams, who used hugely heroic doses, um, and Dr. Alan Gabby, who uh, cautioned him, let's say, on on that such use, um, be, um, saying that he actually, with his mathematical uh, working out of the dosage that that we require, he actually got the um, the doses or the concentration of wet and dry seaweed. Um, mixed oh. up, <laughs> so it's a, it's a very interesting um, argument, let's say, or debate, let's say, on uh, the Townsend Letters for Doctors. Yeah, and and I guess that's that's generally why I err on the side of lower doses for those sorts of things. And I have seen some pretty frightful things in the hormone range too, where patients have been, um, you know, prescribed quite larger doses of hormones and. When you test them, it's like, oh, my goodness, you're right off the scale. And I always say that it's easier to top people up with things rather than trying to suck it back out of them. Yeah. And, you know, once they're highly elevated iodine, it's really hard to get that out of them in a jiffy. And also what we have to remember is that we also have the iodine loading test where they are actually, the patient is actually given a high dose iodine of uh, 50 milligram, but a once off. And then they're measured for 24 hours. Their urine is measured 24 hours after to see what is eliminated. The uh, concept being that if they are replete with iodine, they will wee most of it out and not retain much. So, but again, that is, you can't use that on every patient. You have to be careful because of the high dose. And again, it's a once off opposed to, um, you know, some people that are prescribing very high doses and then causing, you know, uh, halide, the other halide detox mm. of your bromines and your um, chlorides and what have you, fluorides. You know, that would be very interesting to look at to see if it actually explained these two phenomena that um, that happen when you give high loading dose, um, short term of iodine. And one is the Jod Basdow phenomenon. The other one is the Wolf Chaikoff effect. So they're this sort of, um, you know, juxtaposed phenomena that occur with um, short term high dose iodine. Um, one's a recovery phase. But the thing, the important message is that they're transient. And indeed, we used to use it in hospital before um, patients went in for ablation therapy for their thyroid. We'd give them Lugol's solution mm -hmm. um, to, to shut down, to basically aid the medication um, before surgery in shutting down the thyroid so that it was basically stable for them to go into the operation. Right. Now, you also cover adrenal glands, and I'm so glad that you... Uh, you know, include this in the three-legged stool because this is something that we're all so aware of in our 21st century living because we're all so darn stressed these days. And it's got a huge impact on the thyroid because what I've seen in the past is people only addressing the thyroid and they'd get things like nausea or rebound issues. So tell me how you incorporate looking after the adrenal glands with the thyroid. Mm. Well, first I want to say, oh, my God, <laughs> most of us are terribly stressed and most of our patients are terribly stressed. Um, and, 
you know, I mean, we sit in ridiculous peak hour traffic. Let me tell you, nearly three hours in traffic today because of the weather here in sunny Melbourne. Not. <laughs> Not. Um, we eat ready-made packaged foods, and I use the word food loosely. Uh, we have deadlines. We have bills to pay. We have difficult people to deal with. Uh, we have to do exercise. We have to have Tim Tams. We have to have coffee. We have to have vodka. We have to stay up late on the computer. And then we don't sleep, and we get up in the morning and do it again. Mm. So needless to say, we're constantly on and trying to turn ourselves off. But, of course, if you add things like blood sugar swings, gut dysfunction, food intolerances, and especially gluten seems to be really yes. becoming more and more to the fore, chronic infections, um, environmental toxins, autoimmune problems, inflammation, all of which is causing our adrenals to pump out more stress hormones. And... I think it's interesting that I've noticed that a lot of patients often don't see themselves as stressed. Uh, you know, you'll talk about stress to them and they'll go, oh, no, I'm no, not really. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. pretty fine. And I think this is because all this busyness that it is just normal for them. You know, so they don't associate their symptoms with stress and don't necessarily understand the implications of their hormones on their health. Um, you know, and so if your patient complains of feeling worn out, moody with weight gain, you know, are they stressed or are they hypothyroid? Mm. And I think these symptoms are of, of, of both, which is, of course, both your adrenals and your thyroid. Yeah. So it's important to, um, to you know, and they feed each other as stress can aggravate hypothyroidism. You can be stressed because of hypothyroid symptoms. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the danger of compartmentalism, isn't it? We want to yeah, treat well, one thing. Yeah, this is when we're just looking at, let's just look at T4 and T3 or you know, this is why it's helpful to consider reverse T3 mm. uh, because we know that that can be elevated when we have cortisol issues or adrenal issues. So I just think it gives a much better, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, it is like more pieces of the jigsaw of our of, of the puzzle of our patient. And um, so I, I do like to look at adrenals definitely if I'm looking at thyroid as well. Mm. I was talking with uh, Dr. Mark Donohoe just recently yes. about the impact of gluten in non-celiac patients um, and the impact that gluten has on thyroid um, thyroiditis. And it was mm. he was really amazed at the results. You know, like there's the, there seems to be this swing that you know, firstly, it's uh, it's only ce relevant to celiacs, and then somebody takes a hold of it, and it's everybody has an issue with gluten, and then you get the swing backwards, and there seems to be this anti-gluten problem movement, as in gluten is not really a problem for the, all those who yes. think it is, right? But the the fact of the matter is that a lot of these patients actually do better when you remove gluten from the diet, so there may be this sort of uh, segment of the population who are not celiac, but they still actually do well when they avoid gluten. So how easy oh, do you I, find that? And I also think it's depending on the form of the gluten, so ah, to speak. So that's interesting. I am actually gluten sensitive. Yep. And so here in Australia, me and white bread are not friends. Mm. But recently when I went to Paris, I was having a knees up with croissants mm. and beautiful fresh French bread and without any overt signs. I mean, heaven knows what it was doing on the inside, but overtly, no no symptomatology and I could, you know, I wasn't getting tired and I wasn't getting irritable guts or anything like that that I do here, which 
I think is a whole nother fascinating aspect about gluten. Okay, so here's a question for you. Because of the interplay between the thyroid and the adrenal glands, could there be that impact where a little bit of gluten is okay as long as you're not worsening your symptomatology with adrenal stress, i.e. when you're relaxed? Oh, I think there's a big part of that, big part of that. I mean, it's, it's like when you go on a holiday and all of a sudden you don't get those headaches mm. or you don't get those sore shoulders or all those sort of symptoms that you thought were, in quote marks, normal, kind of go when you don't have the stresses of your everyday life about you, um, I think is interesting, as is interesting that some people go on holidays and get sick promptly. Mm. You know, two days in, it's like their body's been holding them together, holding them together, and then that's it, they collapse. And they spend their whole, you know, week in Bali feeling revolting. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's, it is definitely, you know, there's the science behind how all these things work, and then there's how the individual deals with all these particular suboptimal levels of, um, you know, cortisol, thyroid. And, and girly hormones. Well, I'm, I'm glad you meant the girly hormones, which men have <laughs> most of anyway. Um, I, I'm glad you talk about um, the cortisol there because most people think of the adrenals with adrenaline, or maybe noradrenaline, but they're two glands in one, aren't they? There's a real protection mechanism in there. Um, and we're talking cortisol here, cortisol production. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's very easy to think of adrenaline about the adrenals. And and that certainly plays a part if we look at neurotransmitters too. Yeah. And, oh, my goodness, that means now I'm going to have to bring out a four-legged chair, aren't I? <laughs> um, um, so, But if we remember, the adrenal gland has two parts. It has the outer cortex and the inner medulla. And it is our cortex that produces the cortisol and aldosterone and androgens, such as our DHEA. Mm -hmm. And cortisol is really about homeostasis after a stressful response. Yeah, so the cortisol, you know, and, and we know that standard medicine really is looking at cortisol pathologies. So we've got Addison's where yeah. you're deficient or Cushing's where you're excess. Yeah. And that's predominantly really what the blood cortisol is looking for is they're looking to, you know, be able to label you as deficient or excess. Whereas when we are looking at our salivary uh, cortisol, we are looking for that homeostasis. We're looking for when everything is as it should be and you're not running away from the tiger, where are you at? You know, what's happening? You know, where, where are the levels at? Um, and also what we have to remember is aldosterone looks at our salt and fluid balance. Yep. Um, and so because without aldosterone, if we lost too much salt with it, we'd go the fluid mm -hmm. and we'd get dehydrated. And, and that's why... Sometimes when people are adrenally fatigued, they go for the, the salty foods rather yep. than the sweet foods, mm -hmm. and that's trying to help that. And, of course, DHEA is very important too when we're talking adrenals as our anti-aging hormone, remembering that it's in its peak in our young adulthood uh, when we should be at our peak. Uh, do you remember those times, Andrew, at all? No. No. <laughs> it was a long time They're too time far ago. away. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then, of course, and and really, that's what I find too when I'm measuring DHEA is you've got people in their 40s that are really running on DHEA levels of their grandparents. And and this is not good mm. because older people 
have all these things go wrong with them. And, you know, we don't want our um, middle-aged people to be getting all these old people symptoms. I mean, look at all these conditions that we're hearing about. You know, diabetes is getting younger and younger and younger. Oh, I know. (laughs) Can I ask you there, though, like... The problem, one of the problems I see is, you know, you've got to see patients all day. So you've got to see patients at at various hours of the day. And Mm -hmm. so you're going to be, if you wanted to take a test, let's say, uh, you know, of their, um, to their blood to check for adrenal metabolites or thyroid hormones or whatever, then you're getting a spot sample at that point of the day. So don't you have diurnal variation with production of these hormones? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's why cortisol should be more prevalent during the morning to get you up and happening, and then should be reducing by the end of the night so melatonin gets its turn and gets you into a restorative sleep. So that is the other benefit of the um, four-point salivary cortisol measurement is we can actually see the rhythm of someone across the day. Right. So rather than in the morning they're peaking and then they collapse or you'll have someone that starts off really low and then gets on their little um, metaphorical bike in their brain and off they pedal and they get more wound and wound as they go, and um, which is a classic adrenal fatigue, mm. and then these people can't sleep. Mm. So they're not getting restorative sleep. So the benefit is when we see a couple of points across the day, I find that then I can target my therapy where I need to lift them and when I when I need to you know, tie a string around their ankles and pull them back down to earth. So when do you test during the day? Is there set times? Yeah, so generally on rising in the morning and then around midday, so just before lunch. Then I would look at in the afternoon um, when they're usually starting to get a bit drowsy and fall asleep on their keyboard. And then before they go to bed, I like to look before you go to bed because it's like, well, where is your stress hormone when you are actually trying to de-stress and sleep? Mm. I'm going to ask you a weird question here. Do you know of any research? You know how you do get the 24-hour blood pressure holsters now? Um, Yes. So has anybody looked at um, the total variance in in diurnal production. I say diurnal as two, but um, the, the total variance in production of these hormones throughout the day and also including the sleep. Has anybody done that sort of research? They'd have to have a cannula in, so it'd be yeah, rather hard. Yeah, not that I'm aware of, um, but it'd be interesting, especially while people are sleeping, because hmm. um, I don't usually like to wake people up to ask them to spit in a tube for me. No, there's a stress response. That's a trick, exactly. Turn on the light and spit in a tube for me. So I, that's why I like to do it before they go to sleep. Yeah. Um, so they are supposedly winding down to to get that sleep. Um, but And I think this is another thing about, again, the other option you've got for testing cortisol is a 24-hour urine collection. Uh-huh. But again, with that, it just ends up it's all in the bucket. Yeah. And you take a sample of that and you get one figure. And I've seen definitely on the saliva hormones that someone can have a ridiculous morning level and then flatline it for the rest of the day. Yeah. But you look at their daily cortisol and it looks normal yeah. because when you add all those figures up, you know, it's like cholesterol. When you look at total cholesterol, people forget that that's a couple of measurements, you know, added together. Mm. Talking about treatment, Beth, what sort of things do you find works for your patients who have these thyroid hormonal imbalances because of and adrenal imbalances because of stress? 
Well, well, this is why I have a magic wand in the office, Andrew, which I do use quite regularly, especially when people say, don't you just have a tablet or something? Yeah. Um, no, I say. Sometimes you have to actually eat food during the day and not just drink coffee. Yeah. And um, actually, I must say about my prize-winning patient who clocked in at 14 coffees a day oh, with yeah. no food and wondered why he couldn't sleep and had mad anxiety. Whoa. Like, Tre- Treatment would have been easy. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Needless to say, he wasn't very happy when I said, do you think you could reduce your coffee and eat food? <laughs> um, so this is why I need a wand, really. Sometimes I need to turn it up the other way and hit them over the head with a stick instead of waving at them. But um, generally, my first and foremost is is make sure people are eating well during the day because this is what I find is a lot of people, you know, they may not have breakfast because they're already stressed before they start the day and then they expect to do their, go about their business with no food, Hmm. maybe a coffee here and a quick biscuit there. So it's really important that I ensure that they're getting enough protein during their day to keep their blood sugar steady because, you know, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And also really try and get them to attempt to get at least seven and eight hours sleep. Yeah. I mean, that's really easy, basic stuff for us practitioners to say. Sometimes it's not as easy for people to do, but I think it's an easy way to start with people. I also make sure that, especially if they've got really poor adrenal status, that they're not over-exercising. All right, so I've I've still got quite a few patients who complain of feeling so exhausted but are then still forcing themselves out five days a week to do boot camp or CrossFit. Mm. Yep. And all I have to say is stop it because it's – you just – Come home and fall on the floor. Yeah, and then they complain about, oh, your tablets aren't working. It's like, well, because you're really, you know – pushing the boundaries there of what's in your petrol tank to actually be able to use. Do, do you uh, see the other a, thing, sorry, do you, sorry, do you see a personality profile in some of these patients where they they can't learn the concept of pace? Yeah, absolutely. And it really is, I guess, to some of the conditioning that we have is just keep going, stop complaining. And, you know, I think the worst ad in the world, which is many years ago, I'm going to show my age, was the Soldier On when good old yep. par- a paracetamol company bought out the ad that says Soldier On. Yeah. Um, just keep soldiering on. Just take your pill and keep going. And, you know, so people don't allow themselves that good old convalescence when they're, you know, people get a cold and they keep going. They don't go, look, just have a day off and relax. Um you know, and their poor little immune system is working overtime. What about these people that are chronically adrenally fatigued? And I think I remember, was it uh, an author, Brownstein maybe, who um, was talking about adrenally fatigued patients might do well to try and work out with their employer in some instances, if possible, that they um, change a shift, if you like, or or start work later and and finish later because they just can't function before 9 a.m. I think I think yes. it was nine AM or ten AM. There was some ten AM. You know, yeah, they've yeah. actually found that with teenagers too. That oh. teenagers do better yeah. later in the day. The school should start later, um, and I and I think there's there's something for that because we should all know too when when is our best time. Like some people work better, you know. It's the old early rises or the late night hours. Some people can get up at five o'clock in the morning and get a lot of work done. Um, and then have to be in bed by nine o'clock. Yeah. 
And then there's the people that, look, can I sleep in till nine, then get up and I'll work through to seven mm. and mm. be very productive. So I think it would be good if workplaces could allow that sort of thing, um, would help people a lot. And the other thing is actually allowing people to have fun. That's mm. the other thing yeah. that... I'm really big on my patients is what do you do for fun? Mm. You know, do you have downtime? Because many patients have su- such stressful work lives and it's hard for them this apart from changing a job, which is not always practical for them. Um, and if they have stressful home lives as well, and it's difficult to change this, um, and I think there's definitely the whole superwoman syndrome going on yes. where women um, have high self-expectations as well as being expected by others to be the wife, mother, lover, worker, taxi, chief cook and washerwoman. And that burns through what I call their little brownie points real quick and they get exhausted. So I actually would think it'd be great if um, we could all have minions. I actually (laughs) would be lovely. I do like that idea (laughs) if we could actually just prescribe some minions for everybody. I'd actually prescribe a few for myself. That'd mm, be great. Thank you. Um, and I've actually prescribed golf for some of my male patients yeah. and pedicures for some of my lady patients purely to allow them that they are allowed to take time for themselves. Yeah. So do you yeah, ever but, institute this this new wave of colouring in, adult colouring in? Have you ever looked at that? I have, and I think it's so hysterical that yeah. we've had colouring in books for so long. And oh, now I know. People are making a fortune. Damn, I should have kept all my Disney <laughs> colouring in, you know, from my kids' Disney books and I would have made a fortune. Um, look, if absolutely any of that sort of thing, I find that whatever it is, your meditation, mm. you know, whatever you find that takes you away from thinking too much, if it's colouring in, if it's, you know, I had a lady that used to, while her husband was suffering through um, terminal cancer, she would take herself um, for a couple of hours a week into her sewing room oh, and right. just sew. Yeah. And I thought that was beautiful and um, healing for her because it was what she did for herself. Yeah. And it was time away that they knew that mum was in the sewing room, let her be. And um, I don't actually know if she ever made anything or she just told them that's what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, you know, that's, that's part of it, apart from all our beautiful adrenal support herbs. You know, we have our beautiful withanias or ashwagandha and yep. rhodiolas, and we have the three ginseng brothers, Siberian, American, and Korean, and, of course, our beautiful bees and C and magnesium, which a lot of people, again, if they're not eating well, they're not getting these basic nutrients into them. So as well as what we can offer them, I think being allowing our patients that they can doctor themselves in a way that they can allow, have time off. They can have fun. They can eat well. They can sleep well. Mm. You know, just some basic stuff. Really. It's, re- it's really interesting how we, we've, we've just lost touch with the basics. And often that's maybe not the answer, but it's so important as part of the answer to get them back on track. Yeah, because it's not just in a pill. Mm. Otherwise, we're just kind of glorified pill pushers as well. Yeah, that's right. And... Um, I mean, we've got some fabulous stuff, but we can also give them so much. It's it's really about, I think, about the physical support as well as the mental and emotional yep. for our patients. And I yep. think that's why they love coming to see us because we don't just spend six minutes with them. We'll spend anywhere up to an hour with them and have a good, you know, gas bag. And it's that's part of the healing process. Mm. 
The last leg of the three-legged stool, Beth, is includes the sex hormones. Now, most mm-hmm. people will know the estrogen or estrogens, progesterone and testosterone. But again, there's so many more that are higher up this interplay chain and can be affected by the dysfunction of the thyroid and the adrenal. So what do you test for and how do you decide what's clinically relevant to support, to, to treat? Well, again... As a general rule, I would look at blood and saliva sex hormones and I would take that into um, play of what the patient is describing to me, what they're presenting with. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that a lot of men will have no idea that their testosterone ever goes away. Uh, they believe to be continually you know, manly and macho. Uh, but men's testosterone does decline as they age and does make them grumpy old men. I do believe they've even made a movie about it. Or some ladies have probably lived with lots of those gentlemen. Um, and then the same as with the girly hormones, we know that they change at menopause. But I also find it interesting the number of ladies that, that all they've heard of is estrogen. Yeah. And they're not even aware that they need testosterone and they have a hormone called progesterone. That's right. And let alone not many people have heard of DHEA or sex hormone binding globulin or all these other hormones that are in the mix. So in saliva, um, again, depending on what the ladies and gentlemen are telling me, is I will definitely look at E1, E2, E3, progesterone and testosterone in the saliva. And then in the blood, we can do... E2 and testosterone, but then we can get uh, the calculated free testosterone, which gives us a big picture, but we need to get that with sex hormone binding globulins. And you'll often find ladies on the pill that have a very elevated sex hormone binding globulin, which, of course, affects their natural hormones as Mm. well. Mm. Um, We can do progesterone in the blood as well, but DHEA, a luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone uh, are done in the blood. And we need those, especially LH and FSH, if we're looking at menopause ladies. So often ladies will come and say, can you tell me I'm menopausal? Well, not necessarily from a saliva, but we can get some indication from an LH and FSH. Um, But often too, you know, it's like, well, you're still menstruating. So I would say, no, you're not menopausal. Um, but again, some ladies don't realize that. Yeah. I think there's a big part of us having to explain and educate our patients about how it actually works rather than what they've seen, uh, you know, being promoted on television that you're either menstruating or you're not. Yeah. I have this memory of this, this group of ladies, um, not together, just this group that I noticed, um, uh, and I was treating them for weight gain, um, and each of these ladies was quote unquote postmenopausal. Now, what I pulled out because of their symptomatology was that their their thyroid and their adrenals were shot. So I mm-hmm. supported them. And what happened was they bled again. Each of these five ladies, they they menstruated again. What I thought was interesting was these five ladies decided it was more important to not have to worry about menstruation than to bother about their weight gain. <laughs> And so they chose <laughs> they chose to address other things, but I thought it was really funny because the 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 reason, of course, being that they were so stressed during their life, their adrenals were so clapped out 
that they their hormone system just couldn't support their natural cycle. Yes. Mm. And once you yes. gave some support, it came back. And this leads on to my next question. So when patients, when you're talking about drug therapy, they're quite, not always, but specifically targeted, whereas nutrients and herbs, they might have a label of doing something, but they're actually there to nourish the body rather than block or upregulate something. Like we nourish enzyme systems. We don't block them. Um, yes. and, and that, to me, makes for an inherently safer therapy. But are there any caveats that you've sort of learnt over your time in clinic about various patients or various treatments? Again, I mean, there's some obvious contraindications for things and all practitioners should be you know, cognizant of those. But I think it's um, it, there's a lot that you said about the ladies that they're you know, stress levels had affected their hormones. And and I was just thinking back on another example is uh, women that um, do a lot of exercise and they stop Uh, menstruating, Yeah, uh, which again is not necessarily that they're menopausal. It's just that they've, sometimes it's because they're so under fat. Yeah. Um, And what we have to remember when you mentioned that higher up the scale is we need cholesterol Mm. to make sex hormones. Mm. So we do need some fat ladies um but it's about the right fat and so i guess it is it is imperative to kind of look at do some testing sometimes because people can be appear as menopausal or what have you and they're not the case i had another woman who had read about um the low fat thing and how wonderful soy was so she was going all low fat and soy I worked out she was having five serves of soy a day. And so at 36, she came in to me saying that she's menopausal. Mm. And I said, no, you're soy toxic. And we took her off of soy and she got her periods back in a month. You know, so those sorts of things are probably caveats in a way. You've got to look at people's, what are they doing, not just necessarily um, medication, but what are they doing in their lives that Mm. can be affecting these things. Yeah. And I can think of two stories where uh, patients were on medication and they weren't being monitored. And I think that's something too. So we had um, one woman was, you know, seeing her local GB complaining of fatigue and she had been originally prescribed taroxin. And and as she came in saying she was more tired, the doctor just kept giving her ever-increasing doses of taroxin. So by the time she came in to see us, she came in in dark sunglasses, wouldn't speak to anyone in the office but me, claimed she had felt so, and she was weepy, and claimed she had she felt so bad on the way here that she was thinking of driving a car into the traffic. And I was like, whoa. Um, and this was because when we actually looked at her thyroids, they were out of control. You wow. know, she was just so, they'd actually made her hyper. And she was beyond herself. You know, she'd almost, she was manic. Mm. So it was really about get that stuff out of you or reduce the dose immensely. Mm. Um, and she's she's come good now, might I tell you. It was that all a happy ending. But it was just this increasing the medication without looking at things. Yeah. You know, and another one I had was a woman who came in so highly strung, we really had to kind of, you know, to tie down. And she'd been on the contraceptive pill for 25 years. And when um, asked by her local doctor if she'd had a period and she said no, uh, he said, oh, well, well, then we'll put you on HRT now because she's 44 and hadn't had a period. Right. But the fact is Rather that, well, why. because she hadn't had a bleed because she was taking the contraceptive pill 
nonstop. Yeah. With no break. Um, and, you know, again, this is about asking the right questions and actually measuring. Like, what about measuring mm. to see whether she's menopausal yeah. or finding out what the patient is doing? So those are the sorts of things I would probably say when we're looking at medications and giving people is just make sure we're not missing something in our history taking that could be why, you know, someone's not bleeding or someone's excessively tired mm. or what have you. You know, like some people can, some ladies will be excessively tired and if you go, oh, it's adrenals, it's adrenals. But perhaps if you check their iron and you find out that they're anemic because yeah. their periods are so heavy. Yeah. Um, so that's probably where I'd come with the caveats about looking at well, other aspects of people's presenting complaints. With regards to the hormone testing, mm. um, rather than just the hormones themselves, do you test for the metabolites of especially estrogens? Um, I would do. That's usually my thing if um, I'm not getting anywhere with reducing the salivary estrogens right. or if my ladies have a personal or family history of gynecological cancers. Yep. Um, I will certainly look at that. The other thing I was also thinking about is with people that have long-term fatigue is another thing to think of is ACTH or adrenocorticotrophic hormone mm -hmm. um, because, again, we have done that on a few people that just weren't getting feeling better with all the support. And we actually found that uh, two of them in particular had Addison's disease. Right. They weren't. They didn't just have chronic fatigue. They actually, it turned out they did have Addison's. Mm. Um, and so that's something, again, we can miss if we're not sometimes going deeper down the rabbit hole of the three-legged stool. Mm. But certainly estrogen metabolites, uh, you know, don't forget your gut. Don't forget measuring your gut. Don't forget measuring neurotransmitters. Uh, too sometimes with people and their moods too. So what about which is a whole other kettle of fish? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about treatment for these sort of things? So if you were going to treat the three-legged stool, I know we're talking about a huge arsenal of things that we can use to help balance out thyroid, adrenal, and sex hormones. But mm. tell me about some of the more common things that you might use in your clinic. Well, definitely my adrenal. Uh, herbs, okay, so as measured before, the Siberian Brothers and the Withanias, Rhodiolas, um, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. Love those. Mm -hmm. Love those immensely. Definitely uh, B and C. In what, and again, you look at across the board of what else is going on. Yeah. Uh, thyroid, again, sometimes I find unless someone has an overt thyroid situation, sometimes really going in with adrenal support, I find that their thyroid can actually work better anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and being mindful of their gut health as well. So sometimes I may give people, uh, providing they're not too worn out, I may give them a gentle bit of liver and gut support mm -hmm. to help um, the liver metabolize these hormones better. Um, and then with female hormones, of course, we have various herbs and, and spices, but also working with an integrative doctor. Um, the doctors I work with do use bioidentical hormones mm -hmm. um, to good effect, um, and that's often used when 
you know, girls. Sometimes I found our herbs may may not hit the spot with some of these girls that really need a lot of support. Yeah, they need they're a band-aid now. Yeah, yeah. They're very drained, you know, especially if they're what I call pan-hormonally drained. Yeah. And these are the, the girls you'll find, they're low, uh, low estrogen, low progesterone, low testosterone, low adrenals. Their thyroid is suboptimal hypo, yep. you know, subclinical hypo. But it's when you see they've got and low DHA just across the board, they are flat. Yep. Um, and and so these girls will uh, will need a, a lot more support. Yeah. So wrapping up, what sort of clinical advice can you give to practitioners who are looking to help people with hormonal dysregulation? You know, like, for instance, female hormones. I think the seminal textbook for natural medicine practitioners would be Ruth Trickey's. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What about um, adrenal fatigue or thyroid um, issues. Is there, is there any key authors or key resources that you might use? Uh, Dr. James Wilson, he's the adrenal fatigue, uh, the, what is it, the 21st century stress syndrome, mm. is a brilliant book. It's really easy reading. I know some practitioners, he's got some uh, little cartoon pictures in there that I know that some uh, prackies have actually photocopied. Yep. So they can actually show their patient is this you, is this you, is this, you know, do you suffer from these uh, things? Oh, yes. And because people love pictures. Yeah. And when they go, oh, yeah, yes, yes, and then they they think, oh, my God, well, maybe I am stressed. I mean, this is what I find when adrenally fatigued people, when I, they think I'm a mind reader, when I go, so when you get up in the morning, takes you at least that first coffee or maybe the second coffee before you feel good, and then after lunch, you know, then you start looking for the Tim Tams or the little cheeky muffin, and then you know, in the after, in the evening when you get home, you fall asleep on the couch, and then when you try and go to bed, you know, three hours later, you're wired. Yeah. People go, yes. How do you know? <laughs> and I go, because that's adrenal fatigue for you, and uh, and that's a good thing about Dr. Wilson's um, book is it it has the pictures that you can show people. This is you. you have trouble getting out of bed, you have trouble getting to sleep, you have all these things. Um, so I really like that one. Uh, on thyroid, there's a book that I love and a website that I love called Stop the Thyroid Madness. Right. Stop the Thyroid Madness. Stop the Thyroid Madness. Right. Um, is, again, easy reading for practitioners and patients alike. These are the sort of books that you can also suggest your patients uh, look at so you know we don't have to give them a whole lesson mm. um, and yeah so so they're quite handy you know taking snippets out of that to tell our patients um, and again I just remember the stool is cool yeah the, the three-legged stool is cool it's a good place to start for a lot of our people that come in and complain I'm tired my hormones are all over the place or they'll say, I think it's my hormones. I'm just not right. Mm. And the doctor, you know, I've been to the doctor and he said I was fine. That's when I go, you've come to the right place. And then I, you know, tell them a little bit about the, the thyroid, the adrenals and the sex hormones. And I go, and that's what we're going to look at. Let's go. And people are usually definitely on board and love it because then we can show them. We can show them pictures or 
coloured representations of where they're at and why we need to do the therapy we're going to do. And I find that patients are compliant because mainly they say, oh, no one's ever told me that or no one's ever explained Mm. that to me. You know, they feel heard. Yeah. And I think that's probably the first and foremost, you know, how we succeed as practitioners is we actually listen um, to our clients. Beth, thank you so much for taking us through a very complex, um, but you've you've simplified it extremely well, I've got to say, but a very complex set of, of uh, interplay between the thyroid, the adrenals and the sex hormones. So thank you for that. And I, I, I'd like to say that I do like the way that you take a fantastic case history as the first thing that you, that you do with your patients to get the, the true picture of what's been happening, but also the responsible use of uh, measurement and also nutrients in treating your patients. So thank you for taking our practitioners and our listeners through that. My absolute pleasure. Always a joy speaking with you, Andrew. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, this is Stacey, the baby maker, Robert, and I would like to invite you to join me this year in an industry first. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Babymaker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. You will learn how to successfully navigate the most challenging cases and walk away with the knowledge that every specialist in the area of natural fertility must possess in order to feel confident and competent in the clinical setting. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. A special seminar price will be offered in February at the Going From Unexplained to Pregnant event, and the program itself will launch in March. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab for more information and to register.